Hey everybody, it's your host Jason Klom. Uh, this week is a very special episode for a few reasons. Uh, number one, we're sitting down with Phil Proctor of Firesign Theater again. Uh, we had intended actually to do uh, three, uh, the first three Firesign albums in a row. We were going to do about 20 minutes a piece and um, we've kind of decided that it's probably going to take a little bit longer because we sat down and we really got to really just got to how Firesign formed. Uh, it's, you know, it's your full hour episode and we kind of end right about when uh, Firesign really becomes Firesign. So you can look forward to more of these uh, and you can also go to our YouTube channel. Um, just search Comedy on Vinyl, youtube.com slash Comedy on Vinyl. And uh, this is a video episode as well. We recorded it at uh, the office of Jeremy Guskin, uh, who is one of the uh, guests as well, along with Greg Benson. Both uh, two of my favorite guests, along with Phil Proctor, obviously one of my favorite guests. Um, we all sat down and uh, it's a lot of listening because Phil has a lot of stories and they're fantastic and they're fascinating and uh, I think you'll love them. Uh, and it's a piece of comedy history and uh, not only here, but if you want to go check it out, go watch the video as well. Thanks so much for joining us and enjoy this episode. I'm Jason Klom, and this is the Comedy on Vinyl podcast. I don't know what we're going to call this, but uh, let's just get started. Everybody, Phil Proctor is here with me. Hi. Uh, yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Comedy on Vinyl. We don't have to look at the camera. It's just there. Uh, camera? Yeah, there's a little camera. <laughs> Jeremy you, Guskin. Who do you think you are, big brother? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I thought that was thought that was obvious. I mean, I'm going out of my way to, like, you know, detail your career, and uh, I, I'm trying to figure out what makes you You call tick. this a career? <laughs> <laughs> um, Jeremy? Yes, hi. Jeremy Guskin. Hi. Frequent guest, friend of the show. Pleasure to be here as always. Greg Benson. Hello. Infrequent guest. But a friend guest nonetheless. A high frequency guest. Exactly right. That's absolutely true. Um, and and one of one of the more deep conversations we've had on the show. So thank you for you know coming back. Hey, my pleasure. So I'll try not to get too deep today. Yeah, I was going to no, say that's that's that won't yeah, happen speak again. Speaking a higher register. So. You were willing for some reason. Yeah. To talk about every album. The, that Firesign made, or at least we're going to talk about the first. As long as I can still remember them, I figured yeah. it might be a good idea. That's fine. Yeah. You know, I am I am working on my memoirs, and working is is really <laughs> the the operative word there because it's it's. Uh, uh, I collaborated with a guy named Brad Schreiber. I don't know if you know Brad. He's a comedy writer and an old, old friend of mine. And uh, he wrote the first draft based on my ramblings, like I'm going to be doing with you guys today. And uh, and then I got it back, and I looked at it, and I said, "Well, this is funny, but it's not my voice, so I have to I have to make it my voice, my voice." Well, you know, and and also whichever of voice course, you choose yeah, to use. Of course, there's spelling yeah. mistakes, you know, and 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 uh, misinterpretations of certain things that I said and things happen. So it's it's a full time job, and I'm still unfortunately, or fortunately, as the case may be, so busy mm -hmm. in my professional life and my personal life, which I'm shh, no talking. Don't, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that I, I'm finding it really difficult to sit in front of the laptop or put the laptop on my lap and you know and get dive into it again, yeah. but 
slowly but surely, slowly he turned and into <laughs> his own. You know, and, and, and I'm figuring, you know, all these people are coming out with their memoirs, you know, singers and actors and all. And and uh, Jane Fonda, for instance, or other people, they say, oh, yeah, it took me 10 years to write it and this and that and the other thing. So I don't feel so bad. I figure maybe next year uh-huh. it will come out in some form or another. Probably by the time I get it out, it'll, I'll be able to just send it to your brain. Yeah. To, you know, nice. you can just download it right into your cerebral cortex. That'd be fun. You know, or in and my upsetting. case, maybe the reptilian brain, which is more <laughs> suited to the kind of life that I've led. You know. You're pretty good with uh, you know predicting future technology, so I wouldn't be mm-hmm. surprised yeah. if that's... Yeah. If that's, that's not that's the, next the next thing. Yeah. yeah. I know uh, Peter Bergman and I, when we were touring, uh, were invited to connect with Marshall McLuhan mm-hmm. because he wanted to add more comedy to his lectures. And, of course, we worship the man and his, his genius and foresight. And one time uh, he... And, oh, and, and I only mention this because so many of his predictions are still manifesting, you know. Uh, but he invited us to his... Uh, uh, to his uh, office, that's not the word they use, he's some English word, up in Canada at the university that he was teaching at, all of which I, is is in the distant future. I have to, to Google it to, to give it. It was Google University up there. And <laughs> and uh, his quarters, and we're in his, his chambers, and he's got a liveried servant there, oh white guy, but, you know, dressed with, with the, the, uh, the tails and, you know, white gloves and everything, and he's serving us tea. And remains of the day, just yeah, straight yeah, up. Yeah, the, the, the remains of servitude, you know, <laughs> and, or colonialism. And, uh, and then he, he brings out, because it's Canada, two Cuban cigars, uh, three Cuban cigars. Uh-huh. And he gives Bergman from a safe. That he's got there. Wow! And and he gives us and he lights them up and we're sitting there and talking and then all of a sudden, bang, bang! He planted loads <laughs> in. Holy them. shit! <laughs> you have, oh my god! <laughs> so that, that's my my fond memory of, of the marshal who that, who passed away soon thereafter from smoking Cuban cigars, I guess. And, and great loss. He, 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 he put, the, put the yeah. load on the on the wrong <laughs> yeah, end. Yeah, right. yeah, right. But you know, he's that's one of the people that you wish. Was still around, yeah. going like, "See, I told you so," <laughs> or even like, "You ain't seen nothing yet," you yeah. know. You know. <laughs> but, but he's gone, and his son, the deputy, deputy uh, McLuhan, the, uh, my marshal's son, uh, he is, is keeping his dad's legacy alive by, or had been, by publishing stuff that he had written, mm-hmm. comic stuff that he'd written. Anyway, uh, I, I mention that only because uh, there are going obviously going to be some kind of platforms. I already believe that the whole social media thing is is a precursor of telepathy sure you know and and I'll take it. and help so, now my memoirs are a lot about telepathy you knew i was going to say that <laughs> i did i can feel it because i've had and, and actually maybe, open that envelope under your chair no no <laughs> yes. it's the king of diamonds <laughs> my god thank you <laughs> and it's got poop on it oh my god <laughs> that was my poop oh amazing trick you pulled that right out of your ass. Yeah, no! Yeah, out of my ass! <laughs> right. So anyway, uh, uh, telepathy plays a great deal, and serendipity, one could call it, uh, in in, uh, in my uh, history, my personal r- real history. And some of that will come out during this our rambling conversations because it, I'm going to be telling you the way things really happened yeah. uh, that, that led to uh, the... The creation of the Firesign Theater into the albums into mm-hmm. uh, our our career together. Uh, so, 
we can start, as you suggested, mm -hmm. with waiting for the electrician or someone like him. Because yeah. I know you've been waiting for the proctor or something like him to mm -hmm. come and talk to you about this. Uh, that title came from Peter Bergman's experience in uh, Amsterdam when he was uh, with The Fool, a group called The Fool, okay. which was artistic performance and, and uh, creative uh, uh, costumes and paintings and psychedelic car paintings and, uh, that the Beatles affiliated themselves with at a certain point. They used to drive around in one of their The Fool's psychedelically painted limos, etc., etc. And Bergman was, was uh, the, the story which I, I can only kind of remember, like most, most of what I'll be talking about, <laughs> was that Bergman was up on a rooftop getting high because well, that's how you did it, man. Yeah, yeah. All I had to do was get up on the roof, and you were high. Because you just breathe in the air, and whoa, and marijuana everywhere. So he's up on the rooftop getting high, and suddenly there is a blackout in 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 his area of the city. Oh, not in his brain. <laughs> no, no, right. oh no, no, he hadn't gone no, to that point yet. No, not that enormous yeah. Bergman brain. No, no, there was seldom blackouts in that brain. Although I'll tell you about a famous one that happened. When I, when I was present. But anyway, there was a blackout there, and so they were indeed waiting for the electrician or someone like him to restore power. And that's where that particular title was inspired uh, uh, to, 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 uh, to be created. Uh, my connection, would you like to hear how I became a member of the Fireside Theater? That'd be nice. Okay. I don't think because anyone is interested. No? no. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you for expressing <laughs> the truth, Jeremy. I was I was pursuing the uh, a career as an actor in New York, uh, having graduated from Yale in the class of 1962 uh, with a BA in drama and a BS in life. And for those of you who don't know, Yale is a uh, university in New yes, Jersey. University. It, that's in, the way. It, no, New something. <laughs> it's in New. Oh, that's something. right. That's right. It's in <laughs> New right. Haven. It's Connecticut. It's in Connecticut. Yeah. I was thinking of yeah. the other. People university. from Yale are very well connected. To yes, they are. <laughs> and I was also in, you know, secret society. Secret Society, uh, one which I can mention, unlike uh, Skull and Bones. <laughs> if you mention that, I have to leave the room. You know that. No, I was in Scroll and Key, which is the Bohemian yeah. Society, second oldest society. And Austin Pendleton was in that society. Oh. That's one of the reasons I got in. And and Bob Grossman, who did the Airbrush, uh -huh. uh, you know, uh, album cover for Don't Crush That Dwarf, Hand Me the Pliers. You got it right there. there you go. And he was Peter's roommate at Yale. Okay. Peter was a class of '61. When I was at Yale and, and working in the Dramat acting in the dramat. We had Sam Waterston, uh, 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 Peter Hunt, Richard Maltby Jr., uh, Skip Hennett, uh, uh, Frank Girassi, some of these names, Tom Ligon, uh, uh, Pete, uh, I said Peter Hunt, uh, who, who directed, uh, just a minute, who directed uh, Saturday Night Fever? John Badham. Oh. John Badham! And, and all these incredibly talented people, and Peter Bergman and, and Austin Pendleton. And uh, and we were just the hottest thing on campus because the drama school was was kind of full of the old guard, uh, the, the the teachers and the the head of the uh, a guy named Cannon I think was the, the head of the school at the time school of drama and I remember he came up to me after a show that that I was in there and said Phil you got a real bomb here a real bomb and see because in the old theatrical vernacular it meant <laughs> right. yeah. but in the new it meant oh it stinks and I went like oh boy this you know something's got to give right you know? and and it did Connie Welsh was a teacher and the way that they taught acting there to people like 
uh, uh, Dan Travanti and uh, Joan Van Ark, whom I, I all got to work with, and a bunch of other, right before Meryl Streep showed up, by the way. Uh, but there were a lot of, oh, and John Guare was in the school. That's how I got to do Musica. That's another story Fantastic that the Marseille performed. I mean, it was play. great. Yeah. Talent, great, wonderful people. But uh, Connie Welsh would, would get these, these kids from the Midwest, uh, like Ezio Pins's daughter, who was also there at the time, and would basically uh, uh, strip them down. Now, I don't want you to think about <laughs> about uh, Ezio Pins's daughter being stripped down because it, 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 she was a big girl, and it wouldn't it would not be it's not a good image to, to, to start this discussion with. But anyway, she would basically uh, try to reduce everything to a technique that would be taught to all. Mm -hmm. Vocal technique, physical technique, you know, uh, uh, acting technique. And it was all technique, technique, technique. And and the way that our generation, what our generation brought to it was, you know, fuck technique, you know? <laughs> it's me, you know? <laughs> Here I am, I'm gonna do my thing. I'm naturally talented. I wanna learn, you know, I wanna experience as much as I can, learn from others, and do it, and do it, and do it. Yeah. And so, and that's what happened right afterwards that that whole older way of working went went away but not to say I didn't she had some wonderful exercises mm -hmm. and and I learned a lot you know from from her and from the class uh, but it was still a very old-fashioned way of approaching the the theater and it didn't it had very little to do with personality with what you brought to the table they, they kind of frowned upon that okay. uh, when I went to Denison summer theater during my years at Yale and spent a summer in rep there with people like John Shuck and, uh, and and visiting actors, stars coming in to play with us. We did a, rep, a repertory season. So you'd, do a, you'd be doing a play and learn a play, doing a musical and learning another musical. Mm -hmm. And oh, it was great training. At the end of that, John, John Davidson was there also, who became a great pop star. He had a very handsome young man with a great voice. That was before he went on That's Incredible. <laughs> He was, he beat was me terrific. to it. Ah, There's a new it. show now on the on the uh, uh, the Food Channel called That's Inedible. Have you seen that yet? That's, All right. Anyway, it's, it's believable. It's also unwatchable. But, but I digest. All right. <laughs> uh, 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 so I, at, at that time. Uh, working with all these these people, uh, it, it felt like a little microcosm of what the, the real world was, and uh, uh, and I worked with Peter Bergman on two musicals that Austin Pendleton wrote, mm -hmm. Tom Jones, where I played the lead character, and Tom, with, Tom Jones the musical. Tom Jones the musical. Was there a lot Be, of speaking directly the out movie, at, the, at the before the movie? Wow, really? Yeah. Wow, and it was brilliant. It I, was wonderful. I bet it was just like Hamilton. Like, yes, it was. It was like <laughs> Hamilton, except there probably weren't any. any uh, 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 well, anyway, it was it was true to the story of Tom Jones, but it was like Hamilton. Nice, and and it was directed by Bill Francisco, brilliant director, and uh, and a great experience, big big hit. And then it was followed up by Booth is Back in Town, which is a musical about the Booth family mm -hmm. that Austin Pendleton wrote, and Bergman wrote the lyrics for both. Really? Of these. Yeah. Awesome. So that that was my first collaboration with Peter. Uh, all right. So I uh, read for a soap opera in my senior year. Oh, I got I got an agent from the stuff that I did, mm -hmm. Lucy Kroll Agency, and big agency. 
and I was sent out to read for a soap opera, Edge of Night, the part of a juvenile delinquent named Julie Kurtz. All the boys in the soap operas then had female names, and all the girls had strong masculine names. Cookie Pollock was my girlfriend. <laughs> so Julie Kurtz was a juvenile delinquent, and Cookie Pollock was my girlfriend. Well, she was a knockout, too. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I, I read for this thing, and they just introduced the television camera and taping, mm -hmm. you know, to it, to it. So I read for a camera. And uh, and I I had some time to kill before I got on the train to go back up to New Haven, and they were building the Pan Am building on top of Grand Central Station. Wow. So I stood there on Park uh, Avenue or Fifth Avenue, whatever Park Avenue I think it was, right. and watched this thing for uh, a little while, uh, half an hour. And I, I, I started to walk back to the train through the station, and I hear, Will Philip Proctor please report to the station master's office? And I stopped, you know, and... People are all walking around me, and nobody's responding, and so it must be me. Well, Philip, I repeated it. So I went to the information booth. I said, I'm Philip Proctor. Where's the station master's office? And she said, over there. So I go over, and there's a, there was an open area with all these conductors sitting with telephones at desks. And he says to me, your agent wants you to call. <laughs> I went, that doesn't wow, wow. Is this a, is somebody filming this? <laughs> so, so I went to the payphone. So that was a little booth where you put a, you know, a dime in the thing. I pay thing for my and phone. Ding, ding, ding. I don't mean like right, right, yeah. They're, they're not free. free. They're not no, free. no, I'm yeah, paying every so month for mine. Yeah, exactly. But, but anyway, and, and, and it's my agent. She says, you got the part. And you start next week. Three hundred and sixty-five dollars a show, and blah 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 blah, and I went, holy crap! I'm, I'm on a soap opera. I got a soap opera, uh, which I did, and uh, and so the next thing I did was I went out and bought contact lenses, because I, I wore glasses at the time, and uh, I wanted to be able to read the teleprompters because you, know, you have to learn all these lines, uh, and I'd never done anything like this before, so that was my first big break and I did that for a while uh, and, and how long did that go on for me it was about a year okay. it, it was it was I remember the the head writer came up to me one day and said Phil we got a storyline for you you know because they were mm -hmm. developing the character I said great he said you're gonna be murdered what am I gonna tell my mother yes. <laughs> Nothing so, like job security uh, in this business. But don't worry, you'll come back in flashbacks during the <laughs> trial. Oh, okay, right. I was a revenant, right? I was the revenant, the ghost that comes back after he dies. Uh, great movie, by the way. So, uh, so anyway, I had that experience, but and and then I got cast in a show, uh, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, mm -hmm. and the Barroom Monks two uh, short plays at the Martinique Theater, where I met the producer John Randolph, who became one of my greatest friends, the, God, the godfather of my daughter Kristen, and uh, a lifelong friend. Uh, and John was one, like Dalton Trumbo, was part of the blacklist. Okay. He was one of the, the actors who was blacklisted during that ridiculous, horrible period uh, in Hollywood. And uh, and he was an, an avowed communist, you know, and socialist, uh, and and he uh, had a wonderful return to the business, just like Trumbo did, and ended up starring with Jack Nicholson in Pritzi's Honor, and 
He, he's a very recognizable character actor. If you, he was in. He played in Seconds also. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the, the before guy mm. in Seconds. But anyway, if you if you Google John Randolph, uh, not his real name, you'll see you'll see his face. And you go, oh, that's John Randolph. So and he was honored by the city as a major. I mean, this city for his work in the theater and it, anyway. So he he was uh, a mentor for me. And uh, and then after that, I got a show, a musical called The Amorous Flea. Uh, what does this have to do with the Fireside Theater, you may be saying? <laughs> well, you'll find out. So <laughs> The Amorous Flea was at the York Playhouse. I was working with Imelda DeMartin and uh, 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 Lou Parker, who was an ex-Vaudevillian, great funny, funny man. And later, Frank Parker, who was one of the tenors on the Arthur Godfrey show. Oh, my God. And Seal Cabot, who was Carl Ballantyne's wife, the great comic magician Carl Ballantyne. And uh, who else did I work with there? Uh, Jack Fletcher, a very funny, you know, a kind of a, a gay comedian. Uh, and they played this, the Wicked Servants, and uh, Lou Parker was the old man. It was a musical based on Moliere's School for Wives, and it really worked. We we just sold out. We terrific run. All kinds of great reviews. And uh, both Imelda and I won Promising Personality Awards, Theater World Awards, and we were presented our Theater World Awards at a at a party in Greenwich Village. Bloom was the guy's name who started all this. And it, their books, you, you've seen them, haven't you? No, maybe not. Theater the Theater World. Uh, every year there was a book published by this guy mm-hmm. of all of the plays of that season. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Broadway yeah. and Broadway. And then all the awards and blah, blah, blah. And my award was presented to me by Paul Newman, uh, who was, <laughs> looks much bigger on the screen, uh-huh. I have to say. Uh, Paul Newman, for those of you who don't know, is the guy <laughs> who do, makes the popcorn yes. you like so much. And salsa, delicious and, salsa. And uh, salad dressing. He's Alfred terrific. E. Newman's uncle. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> Star of Cool and What, me worry? Yes. Uh, exactly. Anyway, and I used to, my first one of my first girlfriends, I mean, you know, serious hooking up girlfriend, was a girl named Nadia Lesher. Uh, she was Russian. Her uncle uh, was Don Cossack, who uh, who created the Don Cossack Choir, uh, the Soviet Army chorus oh, records and sure. everything, yeah, yeah. which I, I learned Russian from, partly. And uh, her uh, house, her third floor walk-up in the Greenwich Village, overlooked a courtyard where Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, his wife, used to lived uh, and they used to uh, drink beer out on and smoke out on their patio and we could look down and see them there <laughs> it was a small world oh, so it ends up that he presents yeah. me with this award great all right so but wow. here now here we go they decided to take the show to los angeles mm-hmm. and they booked the las palmas theater which is off of sunset boulevard just below michelli's uh, and across from Musso Franks, near Musso Franks. And when I was there, I stayed at the Montecito, which is still there. It's a hotel residence for visiting actors, came out to do television shows and movies and stuff. And we had, you know, uh, a kitchen apartment, and every I had a kitchen apartment and everything, because uh, I didn't know how to drive. 
when I came. I grew up in Goshen, Indiana, yep. on a bike. Uh-huh. And at the time that I then started going to Camp Black Point in the Adirondacks, which is connected with Alan Stevenson's school, where I went to school, and, and learned uh, a lot of uh, music and the violin and everything. I was in the orchestra and all that. Uh, uh, anyway, that, that about the time that I started going there and not to Goshen for the summer, everybody learned how to drive. My, my best friend, Dayton Dallas, became a stock car driver. Wow. Okay, and when I got out there again, I went out to the to the uh, um, Goshen, whatever it was, and watched him race and everything. In, insane. But I I did not own it, and I grew up in New York. You don't have to drive in right. New York. Right. Yep. Sure. No. Hey, yeah. I got my I got my driver's born and raised in Manhattan. I got my driver's license the day before I left for college, <laughs> and if I didn't pass, I probably would never have gotten it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I I didn't. Uh, I finally realized when uh, uh, well. I finally realized that I, you, if you move the letters of Los, Az, of Los Angeles around, it spells legs on sale. <laughs> okay? And you've got to have a car. I tried to walk once from uh, where I was in Hollywood. I got an apartment on Vista Del Mar. View of the sea? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> no. View of the smog? Me. <laughs> sure. I had a little apartment there, walking distance to the theater, Las Palmas Theater, and... Uh, I used to have breakfast. I had flannel cakes at Musso Frank's in the morning, mm-hmm. you know, and I had a great little routine. But I, I once I tried to meet a friend on the Sunset Strip, and I tried to walk there, and there, there I walk in, and then there's no sidewalks, oh, you know, shit. and oh. and and there's nothing but like exhaust, and you know, I, and I was exhausted before I I got there, and I said, okay, I guess I got to learn to drive. Jeez, Phil, <laughs> you should have just used your smartphone to call an Uber. <laughs> <laughs> ah! yeah, you weren't yeah, thinking. Yeah. Uh, no, I was thinking sure clearly was. back then. I wasn't thinking enough, futuristically <laughs> enough. These are the days, this is in the days, by the way, of real smog. I feel like we should. Point it was that out. real it was. smog. Real yeah. smog. No, yeah. whatever we got now. No, and I said yellow stuff. Yes, yeah. they say in the seventies it was the worst in that's Los Angeles, right? And that's when I was I was in the late in the mid sixties. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So it was it was bad. But anyway, uh, I took driving lessons. I learned how to drive, and and. Uh, and I got an apartment up on Beechwood Drive, overlooking the entire city, and I could see the sea, and I was settling in for a great run, and oh boy, I'm a California boy now in Los Angeles, and I think I'd, I may have even done some television shows or something. And uh, no, I didn't. I hadn't done TV shows at that time. Uh, and, and the phone rings, and it's my agent. And uh, I had gotten another part in a musical called A Time for Singing, which I auditioned for months before. Uh, apparently, out of 500 people who'd read for my role, they were stupid enough to cast me. <laughs> and it's it's a wonderful musical based on the uh, beautiful novel and the film How Green Was My Valley. Oh, okay. <laughs> which, if you remember, is a, a story about a Welsh mining disaster uh-huh. that wipes out an entire family. Yeah. <laughs> Which would make Let's a great musical. Sing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I should have known. But Alexander Cohen is producing, you know, my first Broadway show. Uh, no, it wasn't my first Broadway show. Uh, I, had, I had understudied in a time for singing uh, after, that's right, that was between, between, uh, uh, a race of Harry, not a race of Harry. That was between uh, Portrait of the Artist and the the musical that got me out to L.A. Uh, I I had understudied Rolf the Singing Nazi, and, <laughs> and that and that show had gotten me uh, all kinds of 
of national tours and everything because Richard Rogers directed us wow. directed everybody who went into that show and so I got to work with Richard Rogers and then I was cast and uh, as an understudy I was in the show I was one of the the guests at the uh, at the big ball in their house and I was a Nazi soldier and you know the typical Austrian German you know <laughs> casting and and uh, and I was paired with Richard Rogers' mistress, who was a formidable, blonde, tall, <laughs> well-built, uh, gorgeous, and nutty as a fruitcake. <laughs> she was a schizophrenic. In those days, they called her schizophrenic. Multiple personalities, God only knows. Uh, but but it, I, I would be at living with her uh, in the background while the little scene is going on before the kids start singing so long good night and we come in to sing good night good night good night and uh, but before then we're we're with our champagne glasses t- chatting in the background all gussied up and some nights she was perfectly normal and we'd have a nice conversation and other nights she would was be talking to her angels yeah, and she, and, would, and would just nod and look at me and oh, great. listen to her angels and then maybe share something that the, one of the angels had told her, you know. Uh, but I was in a Broadway show, uh-huh. you know, and and hanging and it was it was great, and that's uh, and, and that's another story because that's where I met Henry Jaglum because we all used to hang out at a place called Downey's, mm-hmm. which was just up from Broadway. Uh, and Shelley Winters was there, and Chris Jones, and oh God, I, I all of the uh, many of the young stars from Broadway uh, were hanging out there after the shows, and you know, letting off steam. And Henry Jaglum and I became uh, bonded. Uh, and at that time, I was also dating Karen Black, and I introduced Boy. Karen to Henry, which and Henry immediately. Yeah. Boom! That was it. I said, "Well, good night." You know, <laughs> <laughs> Henry and Karen locked brains, and we're you're go, you know we're getting into. And it was because of of, of uh, Henry that Karen was brought out to Los Angeles and had a career in the movies because he helped her get started. And he uh, cast me. He had cast me in a play that he was writing at the Actors Workshop, uh, Actors Studio, Writers Workshop called. The Snowball Tree, which comes from the Russian song Kalinka, 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 Maya, which means my snowball tree, my snowball tree, my snowball tree, my tree. Which and other people might know as the Tetris theme. Is, is it? Is it? Is really? it really? Yes, it is. That now makes perfect sense. There you That's go. Awesome. Just so the you... tetanus theme. I never. <laughs> well, the, the Who would have thought it infected that game? <laughs> <laughs> the tetanus theme is slightly different. <laughs> it's a virus, isn't it? Okay. So, yes, uh, so anyway, uh, and and I did that with Karen. Karen Black and Bonnie Bedelia and Richard Pryor and Charlie Deercock. Heard of him. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who hasn't heard of Charlie Deercock? <laughs> Character actor with a funny little face, great guy. Uh, and and uh, uh, and after that, he got he Henry ended up in Hollywood and he worked as an editor on Easy Rider. Now, Easy Rider's going to come up in a minute, and you'll see why. How do we get to the Fireside Theater? <laughs> Keep listening. All right. So so Henry is out there with, with uh, Bob Ravelson and Burt Schneider, uh, the BBS Productions. And, uh, and and they were the guys that bankrolled Easy Rider and a couple of other really great, great movies. And they uh, uh, bankrolled Henry's first movie, A Safe Place. 
and I got to, to screen test with Candace Bergen and, oh, God, all these hot chicks. <laughs> and, but he finally got Tuesday Weld to do the part because oh, he'd written it about her. Hot oh, chicks. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I co-starred. I was introduced. And introducing. Uh, uh, I co-starred with, with Tuesday Weld yeah. and Orson Welles and the late and beautiful Gwen Wells and Jack Nicholson in Henry's first movie, A Safe Place. So a lot of C-list people is, is <laughs> what you really get. Yeah, you see them all the time. <laughs> you know. Not so, enough, but yes. Oh, yes. So, oh, so uh, uh, where did all this happen in, in the chronology? Right now, uh, uh, I'm, I'm in uh, L.A. doing the musical, and I'm called back to New York to do uh, A Time for Singing. And uh, so I had to give up all of my... My my future life, my beautiful little life that I created for myself in legs on sale, and go back to why no work. All right, so I'm in New York and uh, uh, and I, I do the musical, which goes out of town. And uh, what's his name? Gower Champion came in as a as a as a doc script doctor and worked with us. Later, I worked with his wife in Musica at the Mark Taper, uh, along with uh, Sherry North. And uh, uh, and one of uh, one of uh, Fred Astaire's dancing partners, uh, Chase. Uh, what was her first name? Car uh, Ginger. Ginger Chase. No, <laughs> terrific. Let's say Ginger Chase. <laughs> right. And I got to meet uh, Fred Astaire, who also was a tiny little man. You know. Oh yeah. And oh, what a thrill to meet him. Oh, he came wow. backstage to meet me. Wow. Barry. Barry Chase. Barry Chase, I think it was. Uh, but she wasn't Betty Chase. I'll tell you that. Uh, <laughs> so anyway. Oh, uh, so so this is the jumble of my life, uh, but 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 at the time I'm in this play, and uh, it closes it, it, because it opened to mixed reviews but good reviews, and it was a beautiful musical with wonderful wonderful music, and uh, George Hearn was one of the actors in it who went on to great great fame and success, and and it opened, and then there was a newspaper strike. So we had, you know, lines around the block during the previews, and once we opened, there was no way to advertise it. it didn't have, the, you know, the, the kind of advertising reach in the 60s oh, that they've got shit. now, yeah. or public media or anything. So we had a very short run and closed. Uh, and, uh, but I went immediately into another play. I was cast as an understudy to Brandon DeWilda in A Race of Hairy Men by Evan Hunter which was Evan's take on the generational revolution that was happening. Mm -hmm. You're wondering how I got to the Fireside Theater. <laughs> right. so, but, so, uh, so I'm understudying Brandon. Now, I had been faded. I had been asked to understudy Brandon when I was a child actor. I started uh, as an actor when I was nine years old on a show called Uncle Danny Reads the Funnies which uh, some other famous actors and actresses were on to. We would basically read the funny papers from the Daily News every day for like t 10 or 15 minutes in a tiny little studio in Dumont Studios, uh, smaller than this space we're, we're, we're recording in now, and, uh, and ad-lib a lot of it, ad-lib it yeah. and have fun. So uh, Elliot Gould was one of the guys, by the way, who also did this, child actor. Uh, so now, oh gosh, I got I've got lost now in my trail. Oh yeah. So uh, at the time, going to Alice Stevenson School, starring as f the female leads in Gilbert and Sullivan operettas, because I was a boy soprano, f 
uh, Phyllis in Pirates of Penzance and uh, something else in Iolanthe. I'm getting the characters confused. Mabel in Pirates of Penzance, Phyllis in Iolanthe. Uh, anyway, and I'd been asked, uh, oh yeah, and my second grade teacher, Mrs. Green, was a very good friend of Helen Hayes who was at that time, you have to explain who Ellen Hayes was, <laughs> she was like the, 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 the diva of theater. You know? mm -hmm. And Helen Hayes was doing a show called uh, Mrs. McThing on Broadway, and Brandon DeWilda was playing the little boy in that. And she, because she knew I was a really good actor, uh, Helen Hayes asked that I audition for Brandon's understudy. I would have replaced him. And I was, believe it or not, shy at the time. I didn't take that opportunity. So here, what, 20 years later, I'm understudying Brandon DeWilda. And we became extremely close friends. Uh, one of the reasons that we did was that he was a, a viper. He was a, a, a wonderful, uh, dedicated pothead. And, <laughs> he, he, and, and so we would we'd go up in, in the Henry Miller Theater, I think, where we were working, after rehearsal, and, uh, and later after the shows, we'd hang around and we'd go up to a dressing room, an unused dressing room at the top of the uh, staircase, and we'd get stoned. And we'd turn on the air conditioner so, you know, get the stuff out so it wouldn't... Uh, uh, and at the end of the run, I remember looking over at the air conditioner and realizing that the air conditioner was actually not in a window. It was <laughs> on a window sill. So what it was doing was just recycling, <laughs> you know? <laughs> No wonder we got so high up there, you know. But, but, but then Brandon and I stayed friends. And he was teaching himself to play guitar uh, because he wanted to change his career. And so I, I hung out with all these great musicians uh, and, and uh, especially the international submarine band Graham Parsons. We used to go down and hear him play all the time. And we'd jam, and it was, it was, it was groovy, man. And, and we'd put hash in cigarettes so we could smoke them in public and all that. And we took acid together. And Brandon had a beautiful uh, uh, home up in Vermont. We'd go up there and we'd get stoned on acid and walk around and talk to the deer. And, you know. and he was married to the sister of one of my classmates from Yale. Okay. I see how this is going to tie together, Firesign. Uh, yeah, that sister closer. gave a hand job to David Osman. No, is this not no, right? No, no, no. I'm sorry. I got but a that's a good. That's a good story. I mean, I'll totally put, logical. I'll, I'll put it in the footnotes <laughs> or the hand notes, if you will. So anyway, uh, Brandon DeWild. At one point, Brandon says after the show closed, da, 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 he says, "I want to go back out to L to L.A. and resuscitate my act, my film career." I said. Great. He said, let's drive out together. Fine. I had a, a great apartment on uh, West 11th Street, just up from the White Horse Cafe, where Brendan Behan used to uh, give Behan jobs. And, <laughs> and, uh, Thanks for setting and, that up. And so I, I think I sublet the place to, some, to a stage manager that I worked with on, on Broadway. I also did a play off-Broadway called a, a Race of Harry... No, called... called uh, uh, oh, jeez. What was that called? Well... Sam Waterston was in it, and John Cullum was in it, uh, and it was directed by uh, 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 a, a wonderful... Uh, no, I, I better not. I can't. <laughs> I can't. That, that's another... I'd have to do a little research to bring that all back. Howard De Silva. Ah! There his name is. appeared. Howard De Silva. Can you explain who he was? No. No! I can't give you a name. No, he was with the group theater. 
Oh, oh, okay. oh my God. Yeah, which later became the Grope Theater you know, when, they, oh. when, when they went off, off, off Broadway. But no, he was oh. with the Grope Theater, and he directed us, and, uh, our, uh, and it was the stage manager of that show, which was called Thistle in My Bed. It was a Welsh oh. <laughs> folk... Not another one. Folk play... God Almighty! Uh, this Welsh thing that uh, that that uh, by Gudrun Powers. Her uh, name was Gudrun Powers. Gudrun Powers. Yeah. Oh yeah, Gudrun oh, yeah. Powers. Yeah, you never heard of her. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't and, that Mike Myers' new spinoff series of films? <laughs> Getting Gudrun Powers' needle. That's a really obscure pun. Gert, Gertie Graham. Getting Gertie Gertie Graham's needle. Oh, you don't know that. Mm. Anyway, it was an early, early, early comedy. I mean, 12th century. You know. English, getting Grandma Gurton's needle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Google it. <laughs> I'm Googling getting Grammy Gurton's needle. Say that ten times uh, straight. All right. So anyway, uh, so Brandon says, let's go. Out, let's go out to Hollywood. And uh, I took my my new uh, found powers as a driver, and we drove cross country together. Uh, amazing adventures. I actually have cassette tapes that I recorded along the way of that. Oh, God. Really? What am I ever going to do with those? First, I have to find a cassette player. <laughs> <laughs> and that's number one. Right. So, have so, to find somebody who knows how to use it. So we get out to Hollywood, and Brandon connects up immediately with Peter Fonda. And so Peter and as, Brandon... As one does. Sure. One, yeah. well, why not? Sure. <laughs> you know, you want to... Groovy, man. So, and he was he's in Hidden Canyon. He's got a beautiful house in Hidden Canyon. And, uh, and we would get... And he was going through a, a marijuana possession trial at the time. Oh, yeah. shoot. Okay. And so we would attend his trial every day, <clears throat> you know, to, to support him, and then go and get stoned <laughs> in the car while he's holding up the pipe that they had and saying, claiming he didn't. I, no, I've never seen this before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, this was before DNA, too. Uh-huh. Like, you know. Right. Uh, so, yes, uh, this is before DNA existed, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so just... Good old Lord. Yeah, that's We've right. Come a didn't long exist. way. Didn't so anyway, so we're, we're the three musketeers, and we're having a great time together. And one day, uh, and and Peter's working on a little movie idea he's got called Captain America, mm-hmm. and uh, but Marvel Comics, which was nothing at the time, wouldn't give him the rights to mm-hmm. use Captain America, so he retitled it mm, Easy Rider. Mm-hmm. Okay, which which and you know what an Easy Rider is, don't you? I no, an easy rider is the boyfriend of a prostitute there who's we go. living off living off his woman. There we go. He's okay. an easy rider. Uh, I didn't know that, and I I sent an email to Peter a couple of weeks ago saying, "Did you know that?" And he said, "Yes." Terry Southern told him that, that <laughs> and that's where he got the title. I said, "Son of a bitch!" All this time I didn't. know Amazing. That. Uh, so anyway, we're hanging out, and he wants to do some research on the youth revolution. Here we're going around to the Youth Revolution. Uh-huh. And so we went down to the Sunset Strip uh, during a demonstration against the curfew that the city wanted to impose on young people on the Strip. And that became the Sunset Strip riots. Holy shit. And it became the Sunset Strip riots because the L.A. police cordoned off one end of the Sunset Strip and the Sheriff's Department cordoned off the others. And... They just did a pincer squeeze and pushed everybody into the middle mm. so that obviously there was going to be unrest, you know, and, and then they started wailing on people. At the time, uh, 
I had a, I was working also writing for the East Village Other, an alternative newspaper in New York, and I was their West Coast correspondent. So I held up my my press card, which had a big eye on it, <laughs> and the cops just flowed around me like a knife through hot butter. But they wow. beat up, uh, uh, they 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 arrested Fonda and they beat up Brandon. Jesus. <laughs> but I was fine. But earlier. <clears throat> in that demonstration, we had done a sit-down strike, where you know the the cops were starting to move in on us. So we said, "Hell no, we're not going to move." And we all sat down, and I sat down on an open copy of the L.A. Free Press, which was you know the revolutionary newspaper uh, at the time. Pulled it out from under my ass, and I had sat down on Peter Bergman's face. <laughs> there is a picture of KPFK newsman Peter Bergman interviewing returning Vietnam War vets. Holy shit. And I have a copy of that because a fan sent me a copy of the oh, paper. awesome. Well, I go, holy shit, Peter Bergman, KPFK, newsman, he's out here. And so I called him the next day, and he said, oh, yeah, I'm the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> I said, I know, but what are you doing? He said, <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, 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 I have a talk show late at night, a counterculture call-in talk show for three hours or something, 12 to 3 or 11 to 4, I don't know what it was. <clears throat> and Radio Free Oz? Huh? Uh, Radio Free Oz? Radio Free Oz was called. Radio Free Oz uh, on KPFK. He said, why don't you come down and we'll, you know, we'll play. So I go down and... I meet David Osman and Phil Austin, who were both work, worked at the station, <clears throat> and we discovered we were all fire signs. Peter and David are Sagittarians. Uh, I'm a Leo, and Austin's uh, an Aries, God forbid. <laughs> and and we all started improvising together on the radio. We found that we had a comic knack. We had a lot of things in common. We loved old radio. We loved the goon shows. Yeah. Goon shows. Uh, I was going Absolutely. to say, actually, actually Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan. Actually, after yeah, listening, yeah. No kidding. To, see them. listening yeah, to the electrician, it, that was one of my first thoughts. I'm like, there are some goon voices in there, and I'm just no, like, yeah, so that doesn't yeah. doesn't surprise. What what got you started improvising? You say you started improvising on the radio. Were you just hanging out? Like, how did that just start? Well, I had done radio improv with Victor Miller back at Yale, who okay. had had a show. Victor Miller wrote Friday the Thirteenth. And uh, and he became pretty impressive. And he still he he sent an email out the other day saying, I can't believe it. I'm still having dinner out on Friday the thirteenth. I bet. I bet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Because it just, boom! It just it, it catapulted him. And he actually wrote on a soap opera for years and years and years and years. And he's actually now collaborating with Peter Fonda on a movie idea because Peter and he, his family and Peter's family were house. Neighbors, mm -hmm. <laughs> at one point, it's just such a small world. Amazing. So, so anyway, uh, I had done radio, comic radio improvisation uh, at WN, whatever the Yale station was, WYBC. Okay, it was, uh, and uh, and I don't know if I ever did that with with uh, Peter or not, but <clears throat> I always had a knack for for that. But remember my my comic, yep, Gunther scripts, brilliant. That's and awesome. Peter worked with Spike Milligan. Really, uh, in uh, London, on uh, not so much a show as more a way of life. It was a TV show that he did. Uh huh. Because uh, Peter Bergman, he he was 
He was drafted. No, he was due to be drafted, but Lyndon B. Johnson intervened and put him into a special program, uh, arts program, over in Berlin with people like, uh, uh, not David Mamet, but another famous writer like that, this back brain I have to deal with. But anyway, he was saved from the draft. And yet the first time that I reconnected with Peter before sitting on his face was back in New York (laughs) in my apartment on my third floor walk up uh, in Brownstone on West 11th Street. I had hooked up with Susan Ansbach before anything happened to her career. She had been told by Helen Hayes that she's got to go into show business because she was so talented. And uh, and she went to some Catholic university. Helen Hayes came out to speak to the students, saw her work, and said, girl, you got to do it. Wow. You got to go for it. And somehow I ended up sleeping with her, you know, <laughs> the next day or something. So I, I wake up in the morning with beautiful Susan Ansbach in my arms, and there's a knock on the door. And I said, knock on my door? And I go and I open the door, and it's Peter Bergman. <laughs> I hadn't seen him since Yale. And he's in an army uniform, and he's got a guitar. And he comes in, and we all have breakfast together, and he sings, you know, folk songs and wobbly songs to us and tells me something about his life, a little bit about it, and disappears. <coughs> Gone until I sit on his face. And <laughs> This and, is like the best Coen Brothers idea really <laughs> I've ever heard in my life. The man life. was a magical sprite who didn't exist except oh in these moments. God. Good God. So anyway, uh, it, we, we discovered we had this knack of improvisation together. And we did a, a piece called the Oz Film Festival uh-huh. in which we all portrayed multiple characters uh, and showed movies on the radio, you know. <laughs> and uh, Austin, he played a uh, an adult filmmaker, and Jack That's Love, right. I think his That's name right. was, uh-huh. and uh, and he showed an excerpt from Blondie Pays the Rent, on on the on the air. And of course, the the the, the phones lit up with people saying, "You can't show a dirty movie on the radio." And then they, they lit up again with people saying, how can you censor people for showing a dirty movie on the radio? He said, you know. And, and we said, uh-oh, we're on to something. Yeah. Uh, the art of send-up. Because, you see, Bergman, he, he had the gift of gab, but he also had an ability to uh, ab- absorb and become the characters that he was interviewing. So, like, if he interviewed a shaman... <clears throat> a Hopi shaman, uh, after the guy was gone, he he would then become the Hopi shaman Mm -hmm. on the radio Mm -hmm. and could talk to people and tell them things and read read tarot cards and all this. So he, I saw that he just absorbed these things and instead of saying like, the shaman told me, he would say, he would become the shaman and and be the shaman. And I went, shame on you, Bergman. You know, uh, and, and, and so he had this enormous following uh, he created a thing called the Love-In, uh-huh. uh, which w- was held in Elysian Park. I played a Russian poet called Yuri Gavnov, which means Yuri shit, because <laughs> Gavnov is shit. Uh, shitty Yuri. Shitty George or something. Oh, and 
and I read uh, a poem in Russian, you know, one of my Russian poems translated, you know, to the crowd of thousands and thousands of people who all were fans of Peter Bergman's Radio Free Eyes and came Jesus. to this first love-in. He created the name and everything. Wow. And, uh, and, and so we had this phenomenon going on, and, uh, and we created an improv. Oh, yeah, we, we were asked to... Uh, we we kind of created a name for ourselves as the fire, the Oz Firesign Theater. Okay. And so we were asked to perform in the student lounge at UCLA. And we said, well, we'll perform, what are we going to do? So we created, uh, we, we, we put on, it's all the art of put on, we became an expatriate Eastern European comedy troupe, theater, <laughs> theater troupe. Um. And we were trying to stay in, in, in America because we had escaped from communism. <laughs> and and we, had cre we had a play that was a big success over there called Waiting for the Electrician or someone like him. But because we didn't speak English, we had to do it kind of like as a mime. <laughs> so we did some crazy improv there of Waiting for the Electrician. All right, well then, I get another call from my agent I'm cast in Henry Jaglum's movie. Or actually, the way that happened was that Firesign was starting to get traction, but we, we but nothing had really happened for us yet. And Jaglum had been given this movie, so I got to audition, do screen tests with all these famous... He wanted me to play him. In the same part I played before in the play, he wanted me to play in the movie, Snowball Tree, Now a Safe Place. Uh, and it was before Tuesday Well was cast. So, as I say, I got to to, uh, imp to, to do screen tests with all these famous famous people. Uh, being buzzed, what's happening? No problem. Jamie, I can't take it. Melinda Peterson, I have to take it in a minute. And uh, uh, famous people. And, and then, and then uh, I get cast in the film, and uh, it takes me to New York. So I had to put the Firesign Theater on the back burner, mm -hmm. and I went to New York, and we shot most of this stuff uh, on locations when there was an apartment in the East Village that we shot a lot of this stuff at. And, uh, but most of it was in the Boat Park and in Central Park. And that's where uh, Orson Welles did all of his scenes as well. <clears throat> and uh, it, it, there's a wonderful book that Henry uh, put together called My, My, Lunches, My Lunches with, with Orson. Orson. Have you read it? Oh, it's fantastic. It's, it's, great. it's wow. fantastic. It's really good. And he tells a story there of how he got Orson to get in the movie. Because it was Jagel's first fucking movie. Yeah. He didn't know anything. Of, you know, he had no track record or anything like that. Oh, what time is it okay, I'm fine. And... Uh, and and he met Jaglum. He says he looked like a big purple grape because he was in. He used to wear like Viet Cong pajamas. He was always an enormous man, you know, weighed three hundred and fifty pounds. He had to have specially reinforced chairs for him, you know, to sit in and things, or he'd splinter them. Amazing character. But anyway, and 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 Jag and and he said, "Can I see a script?" And then he said, "Well, there isn't really a script. You know, I believe in improvisation, but you know, I've done it." is a play and there is a play you can look at he says well I'm not used to working without seeing the script and he said you're a first time director and, all this. and he said what do you want me to play he said I, I want you to play the, a, a rabbi a kind of a mystical magical rabbi character and he thought for a minute he said can I do magic because <laughs> <laughs> he was an amateur magician yeah. right uh -huh. and Henry says sure <laughs> that's what oh you say so he sure. says Okay, I'll do it. 
That was magic right there. Yeah, Amazing. yeah, absolutely. And so Henry put in all this magic, which is you know in in the in the movie now. Uh, now the, the one story I want to tell about the movie before I uh, uh, I, I tell you the next step of the, the electrician, how the electrician happened was there was a scene in the play where Tuesday Weld she picks me up and I think I'm going to get hook up with her. Okay, I think I'm going to get laid, and and she instead she takes me back to her apartment and she shows me she takes me to the bathroom and there in the bathtub covered with ice is a dead dog and it's her pet her dog has died and it's a weekend and ASPCA won't pick up on the weekend God. so she wants okay. me to put the dog in a suitcase and take it down to the ASPCA <laughs> and 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 I say oh, okay so I put the dog in the suitcase and I, and she's having a séance with a bunch of her friends up on her roof uh, while I go and and get in the subway and take it down but when I'm in the subway, as I tell her when I get back to the seance, I was trying to get some lettuce out of my teeth in one of the the bubble in one of the gum machines there. They had a little mirrors on them, and some guy stole the suitcase. <laughs> Puerto Rican guy stole the suitcase. <laughs> now apparently this really happened wow. to somebody. Oh yeah. Okay, so I come back and I'm telling her that, and I'm all upset, and she says oh, that's okay. <laughs> All right, so in the movie, Henry's debating. Now, how are we going to do that? Should we have a stuffed, a fake dog? Or should we have a, maybe just a fur coat with ice on it? Uh, or should we have a real dog? A very well-trained, patient, real dog. There's <laughs> more to it than that. <laughs> he gets a real dog. Well, and he thinks it's funny if it's a St. Bernard. <gasps> so this beautiful, big St. Bernard is on the set in the apartment <coughs> and they tranquilize it and they put it in the bathtub and it's got his, his tongue coming out and he's snoring and they put the fake ice on it and uh, it's a real one shot we open the door you know POV of the uh, the cameraman's in the back of the bathroom and oh my god I see the thing and she says whatever she says and I stammer or whatever and, and cut and so then they give the dog the antidote the dog died. <gasps> oh, Jesus! Christ. And the next thing we know, they're carting this beautiful carcass out, mm. rolling this carcass out. Oh. It was the thirteenth time the dog had been tranquilized for a movie or a commercial. Oh, oh holy and shit! And it killed it. And when Henry looked at the rushes the next day, he said it didn't look real. So they cut the whole mm. plot line. Mm. Wow. And they replaced it with a magic box. This made the film even more impenetrable than it was already. <laughs> a magic box that Orson Welles pulls a rainbow out of, which if you ever see any of Henry, Henry Jagdlum's movies, rainbow pictures, and that's the opening logo of his mm, film company. Okay. Yeah. He was just honored, and rightly so, by the independent film, uh, uh, by the, in, what would they call it, the Independent Film Society mm -hmm. uh, as indie director of all time. Mm -hmm. you know? Because he really, he has cranked out so many films. I've, I've uh, appeared in three of his films now, A Safe Place and two others, mm -hmm. with Tana Frederick, who is his, his latest uh, discovery, and his wife, and a very sensitive actress, 
uh, quite a quite a wonderful partner for Henry. And they're they're turning out they're in their own, his own little studio. She's independently wealthy because his dad was in real estate. His father's story is a wonderful story, and he wrote a play about it called uh, the last train to Godot or something. I can't remember the title right now. But but it had a real long run. It's going to be his next movie. And it's a story of, of Simon Jaglum, uh, how he got out of, of uh, Poland. Was it Poland or Russia? Anyway, how he got out of Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful... I, I don't want to get into the whole play because it, it's, it's a quite a complicated but fascinating real story. Anyway, uh, we're now at the point where I'm wrapping the movie and there's something else that happened here. I have to figure this out. Yeah, I'm wrapping the movie and I'm closing down my apartment in New York because I know I want to go back to L.A. Mm -hmm. And I hooked up with a girl named Diana Dew who Brandon had introduced me to when we were living on Lash Lane, mm-hmm. right near uh, Yamashiro, down from Yamashiro, Lash Lane, near the Hollywood Bowl. We had a great apartment there, and Diana stayed with us for a while. So I connected up with Diana after the movie was over, and she was living right across from Max's Kansas City, in the, the happening part of the village. And I, uh, so I, I, I bunked with her and her girlfriend, uh, and basically had an affair with her. Uh, the other one watched, I guess. <laughs> and, and, and she, Diana, had invented electric clothing. She had opened a fashion boutique or d- design factory called Expera Puritanius, which was part of Puritan fashions. Uh-huh. And she took... Uh, translucent plastic strips that would hold a charge and glow, and she wove them into dresses. Oh my god! So that there would like be like a stripped a stripped disco dress, uh-huh. cute short dress with these panels, black and black and white panels, and with the use of a potentiometer on a belt, she could control the movement of the lights around the dress. So it could flash and move in rhythm to the music. So it was all the rage on the disco floor. And she had a tie for men and a belt for men, which I used to wear. So I'm living with her, and I actually, it's the only job job I've ever done. I did publicity for her, Mm -hmm. publicity releases. Uh, And we had the wonderful affair, and we're hanging out with everybody at Max's Kansas City who is anybody. And at a certain point in relationships, you reach a point where you go like, well, this relationship is over, <laughs> you know. And for whatever reason, you just say, oh, this, it's over. And we both came to that same conclusion, and the phone rang. And I picked up the phone, and it was Peter Bergman. And he said, Phil, there's a ticket waiting for you at Columbia Records. We want to fly you back to L.A. We got a record contract with Columbia, and we're going to be doing our first record, Waiting for the Electrician or someone like him. And I said, Diana, 
I love you. Bye bye. And I, the only thing I regret was I left my guitar with her because I was <laughs> learning to play the guitar. A guitar which had been given to me by a winner of the 60, uh, of, of, was it named that tune? I think it was. There was a young man who uh, they played Me and My Shadow, and he correctly identified it. And then he played it on the guitar. Remember, this was all rigged. Mm -hmm. These were the rigged. Mm -hmm. and, and he became a friend of mine in New York and gave me a guitar. <laughs> and so for a while, I learned to play the guitar, particularly the D minor chord. <laughs> I, was, I was living in the village and into the D minor chord. Uh, but I left that guitar with Diana. Now, Diana Dew. Diana Dew later changed her name to Daisy Duck. And she, and and when a safe place opened uh, in New York and was playing in L.A., uh, I had a party at my house, and Henry was there, and a, a famous French director, uh, the one who directed Jane Fonda in in that wonderful science fiction movie, Barbarella. Barbarella. Oh shoot! Yeah. Okay. And and he. Back to Jane Fonda. And he, yep. And he, had cast. Gwen Wells to play like a, a deaf mute girl or something in a French film he was doing. He was at the party with Henry and Diana showed up with a duck in a diaper as Daisy Duck. <laughs> Diana, what did I say called her? Daisy Duck. Mm -hmm. And she later married my childhood friend from Goshen, Indiana, Ricky Curtis who lived down the street from my grandparents where I stayed every summer, who I used to hang out with all the time. And the Curtis family was a musical family and would tour around playing clubs and things. And Ricky was a genius guitarist. And he wrote Southern Cross for Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Wow. wow. Beautiful song. And he had been drafted and was a bombardier mm. in the Vietnamese War. And it really crippled him became a heroin addict and uh, but he married Diana they got married and moved to Florida and I still haven't done proper research on this I'd been told that he had died of an overdose but you never you never can trust these things I've been told many times that people I knew were murdered or died or this or that and then they show up like the revenant, mm -hmm. you know, alive and well. Yeah, it's just gossip, you know. <laughs> yeah, it could be just gossip. I hope it is. Yeah. But anyway, when I flew back to uh, L.A., I, of course, had no place to live. So uh, I crashed at Bergman's Pad. And Osman and his wife, Tiny, uh, who was rather tiny, uh, were also there. And Austin and his wife, Anna Lee, lived in uh, Laurel Canyon. And I think Peter was living in, in Laurel Canyon area, too. He had a beautiful duplex house with an open atrium. And we, we slept up on the, the uh, little beds in the atrium. And Peter and his girlfriend... Uh, oh, what was his girlfriend's name? Susan. No, that's... <laughs> Denise. Susan <laughs> was Brandon's wife. Uh-huh. That's uh, yeah, all right. I always get them confused. <laughs> now, yeah. before we get there, I, I don't want to cut you off, but I know you have a call schedule. 
So yeah. well, we have to find out what the girlfriend's name is, Laura. <laughs> do you want to? She's the one we thought was murdered. I'll do you want to do a wrap up and say this is how we got to yeah. electrician, and then the next episode we'll just go over the electrician? Yeah. All right, let's do it. Beca- okay. Because I, I don't want to cut you off, but I know. Okay. I, you know, Stacy. So Stacy. No. <laughs> Terrible. Brooke. Yes, that was my next guess. Yeah. Brooke wow. Esmeraldian. And, also your next and guess, Brooke, right? and Brooke, she's a piece of work. <laughs> Brooke is a gorgeous, zoftic force of nature who was Peter's best man, you know? I mean, she, she and Peter, he, he, he and she were a, a great couple. They traveled to Turkey together where she practically, you know, caused a revolution because she was so pretty. And Peter was doing research for a play, a movie he wanted to write. And uh, and Brooke, later, when they split up, married Simon, uh, John Simon, a mutual friend of all of ours, and moved to Woodstock. And, <clears throat> and John Simon is a pianist musician uh, of some fame. And and, she, and and when I, after I did a safe place, I remember I traveled with a girl I had fallen in love with uh, up to Woodstock to visit them, to visit Brooke. And then many, 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 many years later, I had an affair with Brooke. And, uh, <laughs> and you just have to pass it along, pass it along, <laughs> pass it along. And, and, oh and Brooke was, in a way, responsible for Peter's death. Because I was doing a one-man reading of Don Quixote with the L.A. Guitar Quartet, which I've been touring around with, Hawaii and various other parts of the Canada and the United States. And I was doing a performance of that, I think, at UCLA. And I invited Peter to see it because he'd love it, you know. And, and he had revealed to us that he was suffering from a form of leukemia. And we were still riding together because we were trying to put together the the Procter and Bergman story and, and various other things for for uh, uh, a publisher who was interested. And I said, "Come and see it. Show, the show. It's on Saturday night." And he said, "Well, no." He said, "I want to go up and visit Brooke." He was trying to rekindle his relationship with Brooke, and Brooke is a professional nurse now, mm. and so she was giving him advice about and helping him. So. Silly Bergman drives up to San Francisco, where she is, spends some time with her, drives back, gets a terrible cold, Mm. and the next thing we know, he's in the hospital. Melinda and I were at this time at our timeshare on Kauai with some wonderfully funny Canadian friends of ours, one of whom teaches the ergonomics of dentistry, in in uh, Vancouver, and is a mystery writer, which is how we met him at the Mystery Writers International Mystery Writers Festival in uh, Owensboro, Kentucky. Another story, and his wife is a sex therapist, <laughs> and travels the world lecturing and teaching people how to do it or not. <laughs> and we're there on Kauai and we've invited them to share our, our lock off with us because there's so much fun to be with and we had some sexual problems we were working out no and uh, <laughs> and it rained 
every day, but maybe two during the two weeks that we were there and the one week we were there with them. <sighs> Torrential biblical rains, thunder and lightning and lashing rain and flooding. And, and Bergman died during this time. And I'm trying, and my phone, my iPhone, the microphone stopped working. So I could hear calls, but I couldn't talk back to people. And I had to call on the, on the regular phone that was there. And, and so all the interviews and everything that I had to do relating to Peter's passing and the fact that he passed away. I was in Hawaii. I couldn't have been you know, farther away from all of that. But that puts a, a topper to, to a, a long, wonderful history with Peter. Uh, including touring for many, many years as Procter & Bergman, doing syndicated radio shows, nationally syndicated radio shows, uh, performing all kinds of shows from big old, a big, huge stage touring show that we did based on TV or not TV. Uh, all the records that we did independently in the Firesign Theater as Procter & Bergman, which I'm still receiving residuals for. And really a wonderful, wonderful, long-lasting partnership uh, and Peter was responsible really for it all and certainly uh, created the concept of waiting for the electrician or someone like him because when he was approached by a producer named Gary Usher at Columbia who had gotten wind of us through Phil Austin. Phil had done voices for an astrology record and another record I think called Duckman. I think it was called Duck, or Duckman, yeah. Uh, and Gary Usher talked to Peter through connection with Phil, said, I want to do an Oz Firesign Theater record. And Peter said, no, no, you want to do a, a no, pardon me, I'm misspeaking myself. He said, you want to do an, a Radio Free Oz. I want to do a Radio Free Oz record. And Peter said, no, 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 you want to do an Oz Firesign Theater record. And Gary said, anything you want. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So that's why that record got made. Okay. But we we had to lose the name Oz because Disney ah. was doing a thing called Return to Oz at yep. the time. Yep. And so it was a huge success. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. And, right. And, and so we got a letter. Which we're still talking about. Yeah, yeah right, right, right. We got a letter signed by Mickey. Yeah. <laughs> and Goofy, his partner in law. Well, you knew Daisy Duck, so that <laughs> must have helped. Should've you know, you just get the right, you know, Donald should've to helped. show up. And, you know, you know. Should have helped. But, <laughs> but it wasn't the Donald, so nothing could really happen. <laughs> Thank God. So we dropped the Oz and became Fire Sign Theater, which is confusing enough, but it was based on the inspiration of we're all Fire Signs, Fireside Theater, political, sure. you know, and Fireside Theater, which was also a theatrical book club. Interesting. And a radio show where they did plays, Fireside Theater. So, so there we are, and the next chapter of this audio drama will be uh, going into the studio for the first time and uh, at Columbia. And the studios were old radio studios mm -hmm. at Columbia Square. And starting to lay down the... The, the writing f that we'd created for our first record and uh, where it went from there. Sounds good. Well, thank you for being here. Obviously, as always, Phil. 
Glad to be here. Jeremy. Can I sleep over? Because yeah, I, let's, I got, let's just I, I don't want to have to drive back in this horrible <laughs> right, traffic. Right. You know, I have a pajama party, we'll order some pizza, we'll do each other's hair. <laughs> I'd pay good money to see that. Thanks. Jeremy and Greg, thank you guys for thank both you guys. Now, doing absolutely, this. Thank absolutely. you. Glad to just sit and listen. All right, thank you guys for listening and watching, and as always, have a good thing. Have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. Please visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, read our blogs, read our tweets, watch our videos, and read our books. Please subscribe on iTunes, and if you like us, give us a five-star rating and a nice review. You can find us on Facebook.com slash Comedy on Vinyl, Twitter at Comedy on Vinyl, and find everything else at ComedyOnVinyl.com.